Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the Evolver, sponsored by the Alchemist Kitchen. Hosted by Ken Jordan. Is there a science to achieving higher states of consciousness? At first, that statement might seem deeply contradictory. Doesn't enlightenment belong to the realm of the spirit? It should resist the mundane, materialist empiricism of the scientific method. There's something ineffable about higher states of consciousness, a fuzzy, evasive aspect to them that refuses to be pinned down that can't be quantified or regularly replicated. You can't stuff the Holy Spirit into a box. For many people, these kinds of elusive experiences aren't meant to be talked about at all. Just attempting to express them with words somehow reduces them, belittles them, contracts them into something pedestrian. But there are efforts afoot to hack enlightenment. We can now see in a lab what happens in the brain when people meditate, we're learning which receptors are activated by psychedelic compounds. As my guest, Jamie Wheel, puts it in today's episode, we now understand the neurological and biological mechanisms for changing consciousness at will. The veil is being lifted. The techniques for reaching altered states are many and varied and include attention to breath, sensory deprivation, extreme cold, fasting, repetitive movement, physical exertion, and of course, substances you ingest, like psychedelics. In the best-selling book he wrote with Stephen Kotler, Stealing Fire, Jamie explores the science behind altered states that lead to visionary experiences, and how the information richness that comes during altered states enhances creativity and can lead to peak performance. For far too long, the attitude in the West has been that sober-minded rationalism is the ticket to insight and success— and the flights of fancy that come from different states of consciousness are ungrounded, unproductive, and should be dismissed. But stealing fire shows how the intelligent and intentional use of altered states have demonstrably positive effects and have been embraced by many people whose society considers to be among our most successful, from Silicon Valley entrepreneurs to Super Bowl champions, to extreme sports stars to the Navy SEALs. Stealing Fire grew out of research into the experience known as FLOW that Jamie and Stephen have been doing at the FLOW Genome Project. As they say in the book, FLOW is defined as an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and perform our best, and refers to those in-the-zone moments where focus gets so intense that everything else disappears. Action and awareness start to merge. Our sense of self vanishes. Flow is one way to lift the veil, but there are so many ways to see God. In our conversation, Jamie talks about the important role that magic mushrooms have played in his own opening to the numinous, and how he has devoted his life since then to understanding that experience and sharing it with others. Jamie is adamant that we could all have that crack-in-the-sky moment for ourselves and experience direct connection with Source, whatever that might be. 
And then what? After you've broken through to the other side, gotten a glimpse behind the curtain, how do you maintain that awareness? And what do you do with that knowledge to incorporate it into your everyday life? Sometimes I can't sleep. I have a lot going on. It's hard to process everything that's happened during the day. So maybe I manage to fall asleep for a while, but then I wake up at three o'clock in the morning and I simply can't pass out again. I don't like the feeling that sleeping pills give me. There's a kind of grogginess that lasts with sleeping pills, a heaviness that messes with my day. So that's just not an answer for me. Evolver is the proud parent of the alchemist's kitchen which we describe as a botanical dispensary devoted to the power of plants. We have herbalists on staff, trained and experienced herbalists who know what they're talking about. And when I asked one of them about this, she recommended a dream elixir from Anima Mundi. It's a liquid. You take a teaspoon or two on its own or you add it to a tea. It's kind of sweet and has a smooth taste. And I found that it made my nights go more easily. It has a gentle, almost caressing effect that's not like any pill I ever popped from the drugstore. Anima Mundi Dream Elixir is an organic blend of a number of herbs used by cultures around the world to address insomnia, promote deep sleep, and encourage lucid dreaming, chosen specifically for the restorative properties on the hypothalamus, a pearl-sized control center in the brain that directs the body's most important functions. It includes ashwagandha, passion flower, kava kava, skullcap, blue lotus, and more. You can find Anima Mundi Dream Elixir on the Alchemist Kitchen website in the Sleep Better section. Go to thealchemistkitchen.com, there's an S in there. And if you have a question about an issue like I did, you can click on the Ask an Herbalist link to find out what herbal remedy might be right for you. Or stop by our spot in Manhattan at 21 East 1st Street and talk to one of our herbalists in person. Say you heard about the Alchemist Kitchen here on the Evolver podcast and get 10% off any herbal remedy. So what got you so interested in altered states? I think altered states, they're so interesting. Your own? Yeah. Did you have a particular experience that uh, kicked it all off? Yeah, I was back in college and and a roommate who was a bio major had a professor who was a mycologist and he started getting into, oh, this is all really interesting about mushrooms growing. And we lived, we were in a rural campus way down in the sticks with a cow field behind our dorm. And one rainy spring uh, weekend, he's like, hey, hey, check these out. I just gathered these off the cow pies off back and they were Liberty Cap uh, mushrooms. And we were like, oh no, dude, I've heard people die on that stuff. Are you crazy? You know, you'll end up in the corner, you'll puke, go to the hospital. He's like, no, no, no. I even checked it out with the professor who was one of those, you know, aging baby boomer, unreconstructed hippie subversives on campus types who had given him the green light. That's a real authority. They did the spore test. They did the whole bit. Mm-hmm. And so we're like, okay, okay, let's try this. So we did nibble, nibble, nibble. You know, didn't want it. We were thinking we might die. And then, of course, got to some critical threshold and uh, went outside for a beautiful walk around this gorgeous historic campus. And at the time, I had been, uh, I mean, I was very much like academic athlete. I was playing soccer and tennis in college. I was like relatively straight on the outside, but super the classic like angry young man. On the inside, I was just searching for anything that felt true, Mm -hmm. not finding it and finding myself pretty alienated, isolated from 
mainstream American culture. I'd moved here from England. Like my family and culture wasn't this world. I felt like forever a stranger in a strange land. So like coming into college, I was like, show me anything that fucking survives like first contact with rigor, logic, you know, cynicism, skepticism. And I hadn't found much. So I would say I was definitely an angry young man. And then that night, found myself leaning over a koi pond uh, in this beautiful, historic uh, kind of uh, sort of, you know, whatever, quad with these old, old buildings and putting my hand into the water to see if I could touch a fish. And it was like Terminator 2. It was like, like pushing through the quicksilver liquid. And I'm like, Ugh. and I suppose at that time, maybe I was just kicking into the sensations of the mushrooms at the same time. And it literally felt like stepping through into Narnia. And I was like, oh my God, thank God that this exists. This world that I'm just now glimpsing feels real and true and good. This is something I can live for. And this is something that makes me feel alive. This is something that makes me feel at home and in my place and in my skin. So it was profound sense of relief and redemption. And it really just set the entire the entire course of my life. Because then in the daytime, I was in this um, honors program where we got to do all kinds of interesting self-guided studies and this and that. So I basically just would be having those experiences at night and then going back into history, culture, literature, philosophy, religion, being like, what the fuck is this? What, what is this hidden lineage? Where did it start? Where does it go? And literally that became Stealing Fire. I mean, so this Stealing Fire was effectively my love letter to the hidden lineage of Prometheans and priests, you know, like the, the, the back and forth of, for thousands of years of the fire stealers and those people looking to shut it down, lock it down. So that experience opened up a door to a whole world yeah. of ecstasis. Yeah, and, and of using peak states to, well, two things. I mean, one is heal and being like, oh, shit, that's a place I slump, I stoop, I limp. So when you say heal, you were... You had some difficult passages too, working with the with the entheogens. Something that was it was not simply pure light and love, but if you were going through a healing process, it suggests you were working with some difficult material. Yeah, I mean, as one does, as yeah, one no, does. no yeah. question. I mean, I mean, the notion of considering those substances recreational is just a wild misnomer. You know, they are catalytic. They are tr potentially transformational though not always um but they are balls out adventure rides to me it, it's it's much more like high altitude mountaineering right so you know if, if, if you tell people hey seeing the sunrise from an 8,000 meter peak in the himalayas is one of the most gobsmackingly profound experiences you can have and it is however um you may be keeling over from altitude sickness you may have dodged you know, avalanches and rockfall, you, you could die, right? And you feel like puking. You want to try? <laughs> and, and so in a lot of ways, you know, any kind of intensive exposure and experience with, let's just call it the entheogenic path, for lack of a better term, um, is balls out. And, and, you know, I think there's a Chinese proverb, and of course, Ivanka just got the shit taken out of her for <laughs> misquoting a Chinese proverb, but I think this one actually is, um, which is, you know, it, speaking of like the path of like non-dual awareness, is a path best never begun, but if begun, must be completed. Right. So there's no turning around in the middle of the tightrope. 
And and I think that's a, that's a that's a big ass caution. I and it's a, a long tightrope. Goes on forever. That's right. <laughs> there's no there's no end to that tightrope. Yeah, yeah. So so I mean that became both my tuning fork and my metronome. You know, tuning fork of like, oh, where is my instrument out of key, and can I get back in in tune with whatever you want to call it. Um, the core, you know, basically the unstruck sound, and then the metronome was, and I'm, am I, am I in time? Am I on the one? And and then in my relationship and my life and work, and because I because I had a, I was sort of dumb, dumb lucky in finding my life partner when when I was 18, literally when I began this journey. So our entire life path together uh, for the last quarter century has been together through this magical road. Um, and so that's been, those check-ins have been, like that's our chapel, that's our church, that is um, where we true up and reconnect with whatever you'd want to call it, the nature of being, ourselves and each other and our work. So it opened you up to this awareness of altered states as, a, as an opportunity to bring you to a higher place to a better place, to your higher self in some respects, let's say. Um, how do you define what an altered state is? In the book, you talk about stir. Mm -hmm. Selflessness, timelessness, effortlessness, and richness. Yeah. What is it about those four things that make it an appropriate definition? Well, I mean, there's lots of definitions of these states, obviously. Right. Um, and particularly within the wisdom traditions or kind of religious traditions, they often get kind of Baroque and clumsy yeah. in my estimation just in the sense they start loading on a terms from different languages and concepts they add on lots of uh, religious assumptions presumptions frameworks and they become sort of top heavy and not that helpful so what we were trying to do in stealing fire and by introducing that acronym stir was to say hey let's go from the inside out let's go from the how does it actually feel absent content so we're not saying, oh, you've entered the seventh stage of heaven or you've accessed this version of Buddhahood or whatever it might be. We've just said, hey, it feels like your waking state ego goes away, selflessness. It feels like you drop into um, some form of timelessness, right? Some form of time distortion. You're either in eternal, past, present, and future commingle. Whatever's happening, your chronology gets wonky. Um, effortlessness, there's a huge amount of reward chemicals and you tend to be absent the strive drive. You're not attempting, you're not efforting as people sometimes say. And it, you know, you could say in the, in the sort of Christian tradition, not my will, but thy will. There's some, now on the neurochemical side, it's just a shit pile of reward chemicals and you're like, this feels fucking awesome. I want to do it all day. Right. But that's, that's what also happening. And then the final one, which is kind of arguably the point is information richness. You know, and it just seems like the bitstream of the data you have access to, to apprehend and then comprehend, is off the charts compared to waking consciousness. And you can take a reductionist neuroscientific point of view, and you can sort of go with like David Eagleman at Stanford talks about the umwelt. You know, it's the, it's the realm our senses perceive, and dogs have different umwelts. They can hear dog whistles, and sharks can perceive electromagnetics. So there's all this data out there around us. We perceive this tiny narrow channel, and that's our umwelt. And the idea of a non-ordinary state is you could just say it just expands our umwelt. We get upstream of our umwelt, so we actually get to experience more of the raw feed, as it were. So a little bit like Neo and the zeros and ones. 
right? Um, and you can, and it, and that's more than enough. You can say, hey, norepinephrine tightens focus, anandamide and dopamine and endorphins, you know, create a prompt creativity, lateral thinking, all these things. So you're not only getting more raw info, but you're connecting the dots in more new and interesting ways. You know, you can use a biomechanical uh, explanation of all this. That's level one. And that's more than adequate, I think. Um, especially since we like process, what is it, 120 bits a second? And we're receiving over like 11 million bits a second. So that's a massive ass delta, right? So that, that alone, you know, it doesn't even have to be supernatural. It could just be super hyphen natural. It's just us, you know, on a turbo button. Now you could go to the next level and you could say, hey, do we, and this is whether it's, and I think there's some sort of new agey books like, um, what is that one called? There's an ayahuasca one about the DNA. It's not the serpent and the rainbow, but what is it? It's- um, Oh, you mean Jeremy Narby's book? Yes. Ah, that, the Cosmic Serpent. Yes, Cosmic Serpent. There's one I think called the Gene Keys that is I think barking up similar trees, but th there are some, you know, not mainstream, credible academic books, but people saying, hey, do we have access to our epigenetic and genetic source code? And if and in non-ordinary states, are we able to unlock or decode some of that information in new novel or different or interesting ways? And then the final category is, is there some outside source or field? And this is whether it's the ether for the ancient Greeks or it's Tila de Chardin's noosphere or it's, or it's Sheldrake's morphogenetic field. And e interestingly, even Eagleman at Stanford, neuroscientist, talks about sometimes our brain as literally radio receiver, which presupposes, like he doesn't actually then say, he doesn't give it a name, describe it. You're like, wait a second, dude, haven't you just backdoored into the ether neurosphere argument? Well, yeah, well, this is the Henry Bergson. Yeah. You know, the brain essentially is a radio. Yeah, exactly. Right? Taking in waves of information or whatever, however it might be framed, yeah. you know, that's all around us, but consciousness does not reside between the ears. Yeah. Consciousness is all around. Yeah. And, and the brain essentially is a tool. Yeah. Can and and, and it Buckminster Fuller apparently program. called it the design realm. And, and, and he, he said, look, there's no way a single dude like me could actually have come up with all these fucking badass ideas. Like, seriously, that's, 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 that's outlandish. Uh -huh. But in the design realm, they're just there for the picking. And so that to me is like, that's the potential um, of why would we bother with any of these states in the first place? The selflessness, timelessness, effortlessness are really neat phenomenologically. They're a relief from our you know, inner neurotic critic and all those kind of things. It's super awesome to find ourselves absorbed in the moment and not dealing with painful past or fearful futures. You know, like all of those things feel good. I think they soothe our nervous system. I think they're positive rewards for doing that work. But arguably you could make the case it's the access to the information that is the game changer. That's what makes it truly and, and significantly worthy of kind of study and propagation. So would you call all of these altered states the way you're addressing them the same as a mystical experience? Yeah, I mean, I, in my sense would be, is that a, I mean, I prefer neutral and flexible terms um, such that they don't presuppose something. So mystical implies, I mean, in the sense of that which passeth all understanding, the misto, I mean, I almost prefer kind of like a Tom Wolf version of it, like capital M, misto, hell yes. Uh, these, are, these are experiences that allow us to glimpse, dip our toe in, or do full-on belly flops or backflips into the misto. And that is, you could just say, is the unmediated information layer. And, and however else we would describe that, again, it could simply be interiors if you want to do the full Sam Harris, right? You could just say these are simply epiphenomenon of complex emergent consciousness in a neurochemical soup. Awesome. Still awesome, right? The subjective experience is the same. Mm -hmm. Or you could say we are somehow bungee jumping into the back of beyond.
and glimpsing the numinous. What do you say to someone who's done psychedelics, had positive experiences, but still didn't touch the numinous realms you're describing, which actually describes me in college and earlier in life? You think that stuff can't possibly really exist, but then part of you also kind of wonders, you know, why am I not getting that breakthrough? Yeah. To which you could just respond, dosage, set, and setting, right? I mean, if in doubt, double the dose. You know, mushrooms in particular. I mean, you know, low-level mushrooms is embodiment and, and awareness and whatever, you know, McKenna would say about visual acuity and hunting abilities and potential mild aphrodisiacs. Mid-level dosages tend to engage, you know, tend to trigger some form of nature mysticism and connection with trees, earth, plants, ground, water, animals, whatever. And heroic doses, you know, in silent darkness tend to fucking catapult you to, you know, like alien domains. Same substance as and just the, literally the different conditions unlock fundamentally different layers of information and meaning making. So for those people, I mean, A, I would just propose, you know, don't criticize what you don't understand. So if people presume to dismiss any of these things, they haven't gone far enough. And that's not to say everybody should. Um, my personal sense is the psychedelic renaissance is far too democratic at this point in time and that we're taking off governors that were there for millennia for damn good reasons and that there's a bell curve distribution and this it's weird because on the one hand this stuff is profoundly antinomian you know it defies having a hierarchy and a set of rules and somebody at the top it's you know it's why arguably the psychedelic 60s were so threatening to power structures and the wars and all those things. Even when in the 50s and 60s, when they were dosing army, you know, army uh, recruits, one of the first things they did is fucking be like, oh, why do I have this fucking M16 in my hand? I'm putting this shit down. I'm going home. So they found, you know, so on the one hand, psychedelics, yeah, are, are profoundly uh, anti-authoritarian. And on the other hand, they're could be and maybe need to be some rules and regs. And the bell curve distribution that, you know, you could sort of predict is that, you know, 10 to 20% of the population should never touch the things, ever. And only probably 10% of the population should ever explore them more than a handful of times in a lifetime. And, and those would be the test pilots. And then the overwhelming bulge in the middle should probably only experience them the way they've always been experienced in any society or culture that's ever had them acculturated, which is in, at highly structured, tightly controlled, and I'm using the language provocatively on purpose, but tightly controlled rites of passage and initiations. So an adolescent vision quest, a marriage, a death, a transition into social roles or responsibility. Like, that's it. Like, you get three in a lifetime. Suck the marrow out of them. And here's the, and here's the entire cultural container. Here's the preparation. Here's the experience. Here's the support. Here's the integration. Here's the application. I mean, if you think about like a Lakota vision quest, those motherfuckers didn't spend every other weekend up in the mountains surrounded in a circle of stones waiting to wrap out with Wakantanka, right? They did it once and they cherished it. And if they received a dream of the day they died, they cherished it and they spent their entire life living in to the intersection of that reality that they had glimpsed and their waking 3D reality. And they were joyous when they suddenly said, today is a good day to die. This is my day. I've been anticipating and preparing for this forever. Not just, oh yeah, that one time, man. And I was like beamed up to a spaceship. I mean, I had a friend, we went to dead shows back in college. He's like, yeah, I saw Jesus. Like I was listening to Jerry in that second set, man, totally saw Jesus. I'm like, well, wait a second. If you fucking saw Jesus, why aren't you Jesus? Like, what happened? Like, how can you casually just throw out a sentence like that? And then we move on to a three-set run in Vegas, and you're hooking down more the next night. Oh, absolutely. You know? So that's the question, is like, what ultimately is the value of having these experiences if you can't integrate it into some aspect of your life 
that really is changing you, that's leading you to, to a different kind of behavior. There's a, there's a book recently, Altered Traits, right? Did you hmm. see Daniel Goleman? Yeah, uh, I Richard? think I have it on my shelf, but I haven't read it yet. It, it's, it's a study of how meditation, especially deep, long-term meditation by serious meditation practitioners, mm-hmm. really creates a significant physiological shift uh-huh. in the brain that can be mapped in yeah. the lab. And what they talk about is, you know, many of the people who are meditators in the States started by having psychedelic experiences. Mm -hmm. They had a couple of profound moments like, boom, oh my God, you know, saw stuff. And then they weren't able to maintain it or hold it somehow. Mm -hmm. And when they went into a meditation practice or went into some kind of lineage, they were able to get to similar places, but in a more sustained way that really changed their behavior. Mm -hmm. And so to say that it's more valuable, the phrase that they're using, it's far more valuable for someone to exhibit an altered trait than to simply have an altered state. Yeah, for sure. Which comes from a practice, comes from an integration. And in your book, I have to say, in Stealing Fire, one of the things I thought was most remarkable, one like the great jujitsu move that you guys did, mm-hmm. was to take psychedelics, which had always been seen as sort of this outsider, outlier, dropout, of the mainstream of society, go find your your spot in the fringe because mm-hmm. you just can't, you know, you no longer can put up with the bullshit of the mainstream mm-hmm. and flip it so that instead psychedelics becomes part of a group of different practices that really can, you know, shift your own attentiveness, including meditation, um, visionary technologies, consciousness technologies, mm-hmm. and make you more productive help you optimize your performance. Mm-hmm. It was brilliant. Mm-hmm. I love the way you guys did this. Could you talk a little bit about that? How the altered state experience helps you to address difficult situations and see things in a different way and the kind of research that's being done around that that's demonstrating how efficacious certain kinds of altered state experiences can be. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe it's helpful to sort of pan back so so people can kind of see this as a tool for themselves and, and, a, and a way to expand and enrich their life. It's not the seeking of the altered states. It's, it's the idea that like anthropologists classify cultures as monophasic or polyphasic, meaning monophasic is like one channel of sanctioned awareness, which is where we are post French enlightenment and polyphasic cultures, tradition, a lot of indigenous traditional cultures where there's multiple streams of legitimate consciousness and experience dreams premonitions possession trance you know all these kinds of things so you know like if you were growing up in chiapas and you came downstairs and you said abuela abuela i had a dream of grandfather last night and it wouldn't be like oh that's funny that's a freudian projection and they had the gobbled contents of your unconsciousness you know in delta wave activity go to have your wheaties right it would be like oh what did he have to say and they would validate that as a legitimate means like in in, in haiti that you know that when, during their voodoo ceremonies in fact what's that new movie the 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 clearing, the what is the horror movie? It's called the cleansing or the reckoning or something like that. But anyway, the point being is that in Voodoo culture, you know, not unlike Mardi Gras, right? There is a, there is permission, bounded cultural permission, for a fixed period of time to freak the fuck out. And schizophrenia and and a lot of psychological diseases were entirely absent. Now this may not still be true post recent hurricanes and crises, but like when the anthropologists were studying this in the 60s and 70s, that was the case. They had an utter absence of a lot of the diseases of the Western world. And and the case was being made by by that study that was because they had structured ritualized places to vent and express and explore, 
right? All those impulses and needs. So they went from imbalances and diseases to integrations and, and sort of cathartic release. So you can make the case that the dial on our consciousness has been rusted shut for three or four centuries and that the diseases of the Western world, anxiety, depression, suicide, insomnia, all of these things are largely a result of basically overstressed nervous systems that aren't getting to do a deep reset. So, I mean, I'm a criminal offender on this. I'll have my laptop open with like 25 tabs open because I'm writing and I'm researching and I'm communicating. And I'll leave that fucker on for like a week. And the next thing I know, I'm like on a Zoom call and my camera doesn't work, you know, <laughs> or, or, or the news won't load. I'm like, what the hell is going on? And quite often I just have to be like, okay, boop, cold reboot, right? And that clears everything up. And we have lost the ability, and particularly in the smartphone era, social media era, lots of dopamine loops and lots of encoding. We're checking our phones 8 billion times a day in the United States alone. So we are in forever in a threshold level of microvigilance. So a lot of norepinephrine, a lot of cortical, high beta wave brain activity, high prefrontal cortical self-awareness and executive function, trying to keep it all to fucking gather. And that is just enervating us. So we're experiencing a shit pile of distress and not enough eustress, not enough healthy stress to our system with balanced recovery. So even on planes, like Wi-Fi follows us everywhere now. There's no place we're actually off. You know, and there's now luxury retreats like unplug, get away from it. You're actually now paying a premium to go back to a low-tech world, which is just, you know, bizarre and shows us how to whack we are. So the notion of why would we bother with non-ordinary states of consciousness at a simplest level, it starts with just a neurophysiological reset of our massively overtaxed nervous systems and a chance for us to return back to a homeostatic balanced center from which our natural life forces and imprints and desires can, can express. So that's step one. Um, step two is, as we said, when you cultivate a high energy state experience, it tends to move through us, to move through our bodies and our brains. And when you experience, it's a little bit like an electrician, you know, putting test wires on, you know, on a circuit. You're like, hey, the light bulb blew. What, where, where is this going? And I can feel electricity here. I can feel it here. Oh, here's a blockage. You got a blown fuse or you got a, like a, you know, the rat ate the wiring, whatever. And it tends to be that, at least in my experience and those folks that we've kind of interviewed around this, there tends to be a sort of natural diagnostic sense. When you're in a peak state, in a high energy state, you're like, oh, that, like that blockage in my system, I can now feel and I can feel it. I hate the word, but like holistically, you're like, oh, that's a shoulder injury from way back when. But now this is getting me to think about what's up in my relationship. And why did I do that dickhead thing yesterday? And like, right. I mean, you sort of get this full stack of like, here's my musculature and my ligaments and my, and my organs, but here's also my emotional, relational, psychological. Here's, here's, here's the whole bit. And it's lodged in my cellular structure on out. So you can be like, okay, now I have that insight. Here's a place I'm blocked, bang, banged up or broken. And I'm also getting like, you know, like a turbo button, I'm getting to power up into what feels like my highest best self. So I get a somatic sense of like, oh, this is me living large. And so now I've got this delta, like here's me lit at 110% or 1000%. And then here's where I'm banged up and broken. And then I come out of that and I have a choice. What do I go back to? Do I regress back to my default mean, crimped, broken, stressed? Or do I attempt to take some of this energy and some of this insight and live into my thousand percent. So what's the practice? All of them. Fucking all of them. I mean, this is the to thing. stay like, in that higher place. Do the obvious. You know, sleep more. Eat real food, mostly plants, not too much. Make love. Be grateful. Get outside. Move often. 
drink water, you know, like dine and bathe, make music. Like human culture is obviously beautiful and we've skipped so much of it. We do three minute stand up showers. We microwave our fucking breakfast. We listen to podcasts while we run on a road to literal nowhere on our Stairmasters. Like we're batshit. And that's why everybody fantasizes about Provence or Tuscany or like all the like, oh, backward, you know, because they are actually still holding down the, you know, culturally rich rhythms of life. So do the obvious. And the more practices that are supportive and foundational, the more A, we live into that thousand percent version of ourselves. And B, it also feels, and this is conjecture, but I, it feels intuitively true and experientially true for, at least for me, again, me and our, our community, is the more foundational practices you're doing, the higher you go into the peak states and the more you retain coming out of them. So this is not unlike uh, that Wilbur Combs matrix, which Ken Wilbur and, and Alan Combs articulated, which is their states and stages. So for instance, if the Dalai Lama has a state of peak consciousness, he may experience some beautifully compassionate, world-centric view of everybody loving and holding hands. If Hitler does, he's like, Eureka, the final solution, right? So the developmental stage of the person directly informs the information and the interpretation of the states they access. So, which is a, an important cautionary tale. Or if you have just some dumbass college kid like listening to Joe Rogan, like, hey, dude, let's fucking mail order some DMT. Let's try it out on Saturday night. Rad. Let's do it at a fucking Skrillex show. They're going to have a very different experience, right, than someone down in the jungle somewhere uh, with, with a lineage shaman. For our personal, I mean, the simple answer is always all of it. Because I don't think, like, it feels to me like if there's a mandate for our current era, it's, it, or even an archetype, it's anthropos. It's integrated man. Balancing masculine and feminine is it, like Leonardo's Vitruvian man, right? And it is its head and heart, its body and mind, its masculine and feminine, its imminence and transcendence, its agency and communion, its service and sacrifice. It's all the polarities integrated. It, it, it's divine and mortal, right? Integrated in human form, which is a tall fucking order. And you really understand why most people, most traditions have punted. If life was nasty, brutish, and short, right, for 99% of the human experience, it makes sense that there was an overemphasis on transcendence. Like, we're right, you, you're fucking, you've buried three children, you've seen your village decimated, you've got all kinds of horrors and traumas in your village or your community or religion or faith, whatever it would be. So you're right, life sucks. So come to church, kick in your, kick in your tithe, and we'll, we'll sell you and tell you on some greener pastures over the hill, because really there's no fucking way we're fixing this one, but maybe the next roll of the dice will be better off. But we're obviously not in that space anymore, right? We've met all those baseline needs, and so it really feels like the full circle is not more escapist transcendence, even though that's what gets most people on the path to start with. It's actually the full circle. And, and when that piece is missing, of bringing it back down into service, back down into application, you end up with the Eckhart Tolle's of the world. You end up with sweet, well-intentioned, but wildly problematic overemphasis on internal work versus external applications. Because it's like, you know, like, yes, we need more woke, kind, compassionate folks sourcing from universal love. Fuck yes, of course we do. And we also need engineers and architects and lawyers, right? And civil rights folks and social justice warriors coming from the right places, right? We need everybody. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Right. Well, the question is, how do you bring that awareness into what you do? Yeah. There isn't often an easy way to do that. But you find for a lot of people, as they start to open up and start to feel this kind of energetic connection to something that's lighter and more transcendent, mm -hmm. then they, the next day, have to go back to their crappy job mm -hmm. where they're doing something that just doesn't really resonate for them. Mm -hmm. uh, they're dissatisfied in so many aspects of their life. Mm -hmm. They're not sure what's the best next step to take mm -hmm. and looking for a way to find a higher alignment. Not an easy thing to do. You, in your own experience, you were working before you founded the Flow Genome Project, which I do want to get to and talk a little bit about. Mm -hmm. What were you doing in, well, in I mean, your professional life? All of this. I mean, my life has been a single-minded pursuit of this thread. Went from college to grad school. And, you know, obviously having those initial experiences in college, you're like, okay, wow, this is really interesting. There seems to be this beautiful possibility space for humans and culture, but it doesn't seem like what the world outside looks like. That seems kind of fucked up and whacked. Where did we go wrong? So the classic undergrad romantic, like let's go back and find the indigenous cultures, the non-traditional, like Western world sucks, boo. You know, where was things interesting? And so I went to grad school with a specific intention. It was basically like Yuval Harari's Territory and Sapiens meets Guns, Germs, and Steel. So I was fascinated by proto-European context. So what happened where European cultures interacted with indigenous cultures and it was still a fair fight? You were an anthropologist? Yes, so historical anthropology. With an eye towards consciousness and with an eye towards the evolution of this stuff and including like anytime I saw utopian or visionary movements, I'd drill way down. So everything from the Greek Eleusinian mysteries to the Native American peyote cults of the 19th century to the Oneidans and the polyamorous, you know, silverware makers back in the 19th century all the way to the 60s. Like I was just fascinated. Like where the fuck has this gone on? Where has it gone wrong? And what's possible? So then I... Was all, I was on track to be like a PhD by age 22 <laughs> and was just balls out in, at the academic space. And then, I was, and then I got into a lot of mountain climbing, uh, just backcountry experience, surf rescue things. And that was always my other passion was just being out in big nature because I was kind of a misanthrope. Didn't think too much. Like I had infinite faith in human nature and zero faith in human culture. That was before s your psychedelic experience. No, it was kind of all unfolding. And you were starting it, to actually get into yeah. outdoors, extreme sports. Yeah, well, kind we, of a we thing. plugged into kind of the Colorado psychedelic outdoor, you know, music and lifestyle scene. We lived in Boulder and Telluride and various other places, and it's righteous. I mean, it's a bunch of badass folks who, you know, I mean, our first week moving there we climbed the flat irons which are these mountains these iconic mountains right outside boulder and it was a full moon and we were up there you know potentially in a non-ordinary state of some sort and we were sitting there perched on the rocks and the moon was up and it was shining over the snow-capped mountains behind us and i just remember me like i just hooted i was like woo, you know really just stoked on the night and out of nowhere come about a hundred additional hoots and hollers and you realize no fucking flyer no coordination no flash mobs this was you know, mid 90s a hundred other people had decided tonight's the night we all hook down some shrooms and fucking go climb in the mountains and howl at the moon and you're like these are my people so so that sense of and and i think in, in a lot of ways i feel like where mountain culture i always noticed that boulder hippies 
were a tighter bunch in general than California hippies. Um, and, and the reason, In what way? Well, because they had to keep their shit together and not, to not get killed. It gets cold. People had wilderness medicine training. They had, they had avalanche training. Like when they were at shows, they, they had their cool little packs that they stored their shit and they had Nalgene balls and you had to stay hydrated. Like you got beach hippies and they're just fucking soft. You know, they'll just get, they'll get drop like flies. But Colorado hippies basically, and I, and I don't mean this as in the generic sense, I mean the mountain folks were like, we go climb 512s, 514s, we free solo shit, we do backcountry summits, and then we come down and hook down some psychedelics and puff some good nugs and dance the night away at the Bluegrass Festival in Telluride or whatever. So there was this, or we kayak class five rivers, like we face the reaper in our passions and our pursuits and we bury our friends. This is a real thing. And, and we know, we, we, we have a living relationship effectively with Kali, right? With the mother destroyer. Uh, that keeps us honest so that our ascendants, and that's not to say there aren't all sorts of Peter Pans and bliss junkies and state chasers in mountain and resort towns, there are. But I would say that there's a degree of gravitas and roundedness that is absent, right, in the land of the lotus eaters where it's always sunny and warm and you can just kind of punt on the beach. So you got out of college. Yeah. And then you had to get a job. Yeah, and so we went and taught at a boarding school with a very on, on the West Coast with a very strong outdoor program because I always found that I did most of our learning, deepest learning, was in the backcountry. And a lot of the lessons of mountain climbing, backcountry skiing, biking, whatever, just were embodied metaphors that just, you know, are infinitely useful. And so spent, you know, 15 years doing high-intensity experiential learning in the backcountry for different populations, sort of 16-year-olds to 24-year-olds and then on into adults and executives, but basically saying, hey, what happens when you don't just do the kind of classic outward bound of like, let's go out into nature and we're gonna learn about ourselves and each other via teamwork. You know, like we, I was always interested in laying in literature, laying in culture, laying in like intellectually stimulating and challenging things, throwing in war games and simulations. Like how do you take these wild ass environments outside of culture and basically use them as simulations of the psychedelic experience. How do you create non-ordinary state learning experiences via profound emotions in wild places? And so that became, you know, that remains a, a super, you know, deep passion and interest. I, you know, to me, that's church. Those are the places to go to do it. And that felt like a street-friendly way to provide a lot of people access. So it may take five days, it may take, you know, 20 days in the backcountry, but you will take people through a very similar arc to an evening of a psychedelic experience. But what we're seeing now, I mean, through the research that mm -hmm. you guys talk about in Stealing Fire, is that the actual physiological effects mm -hmm. of psychedelics, of meditation, of an extreme sport kind of experience, mm -hmm. and also now with their, the kinds of consciousness experiences being created through technology, that there's a similarity it's effectively the same kinds of shifts yep. can be traced yeah 100 percent. and i mean I, and i think that's that is the that's hopefully the story that comes out of stealing fire because we're not actually advocates for any specific intervention the, the thing i'm if i was to be like on a hill waving a flag saying, hey hey guys pay attention don't like like make sure you remember this it's that we now understand the neurobiological mechanisms for changing consciousness at will. And that's, we understand, hey, 
the neuroelectric signature. Beta is our normal, but alpha and theta are really interesting and correlate with all sorts of profound states, as does waking state delta, which virtually nobody knows about or talks about. Interesting. Same with our neuroendocrine system. Hey, these are stress hormones, but here are pleasure and learning and connection hormones. And if you prime them, so what happens is basically you can create what we call the flow genome matrix which is just literally a giant chart of neuroanatomy, electricity, cardiac conditions, posture, respiration, including some psychological maps and models. How do I make sense of all this? And you're like, look, we don't need to go chasing e you know, ego death or enlightenment or any of these nebulous, fuzzy ass, wildly confused folk notions. You can just say, here's the chart. Here are the knobs and levers of your body and brain. Tune them to 11 and then see who's home. And it's a complete end run around the entire quote-unquote spiritual project. And because the trouble with the spiritual project is, you know, it's, it's like Br'er Rabbit and the Tar Baby. You know, like the more you struggle to get rid of your ego, the stucker you get. And trying to not think about thinking is a son of a bitch. It's a performative contradiction that is, you know, nearly game-ending for most people. Have so, you, do you have your own meditation practice? Have you gone down that road? I mean, I do not sit my ass on a cushion, I'll tell you that much. I mean, uh -huh. but, but for sure... Um, Yes, is, is, are there, or phrased slightly differently, are there ways that I get into high information states on a regular basis? Yes, and I would do, the, I do those. I mean, maybe I would say I am at a minimum hyposensitive, like on the sensory integration spectrum. There are some people that, you know, hear noises or scratch scratches and get too much, and I'm the opposite. Like I need... I need very strong sensory inputs to even me, to level me out. Um, so, I mean, it's that old, that old dead tune. It takes dynamite to get me off, right? Too much of everything is just enough, you know? So, so that is me. So for, for instance, I will get into a state of no thought much faster stand up paddling than I would sitting on a fucking cushion or through intensive music and sexuality, that a combination, something along those lines. Like I need to have strong sensations and because you can, you can get to, you know, no mind through, you know, whatever, the mantras, the koans, the open guided stuff, the attention on breath. You can also do it through intensity, duration or repetition of physical activity. Right. And so intensity is obviously I'm about to drop down a narrow ski couloir and I'm gonna, if I fall, I die. That'll get you into the present. Um, duration, I'm going to go for a 100-mile run through the mountains and I just pass through all these stages. And repetition, I'm, I'm gardening or I'm knitting or I'm doing anything that is a repetitious fine motor or gross motor activity that effectively hypnotizes me out of waking consciousness. And I just, in general, have always gravitated more towards that kind of stuff. You're in nature, mm -hmm. you're teaching kids, you're starting to teach, work with adults more, bringing them into nature. Mm -hmm. How did you get from there to working with Stephen Kotler on Flow Genome Project? Mm -hmm. Well, I had been, so, so the latest chapter, I was like, at some point, probably late 20s, early 30s, I'm like, well, fuck, this is really high-end quality work. But you can add a few more zeros to your paycheck if you do this with adults versus adolescents and college kids and got recruited by a firm that was actually a spin-off of Bain and Company, so one of the kind of boutique management consulting firms. And they were really interested in a wide representation of leadership excellence. So they had a couple of Navy SEALs, they had a few martial arts masters, and they're like, hey, you've been taking people up mountains in the Himalayas, you've been doing this stuff in the Sierras and Rockies, like this seems like a really good, interesting fit. We'd like to bring you in. So I actually got a fantastic kind of 
transition into the, and, and really all the leadership tools, models, and research were the same. So it was a very easy switch. It was just into a boardroom. And that always felt very easy to me because I was like, no one's going to die today. Like, this is really, actually, if we're just talking about quarterly results, this is kind of a cakewalk. Um, so got to, it was kind of like Siddhartha coming into town, you know, like after being in the woods. And he's like, oh, shit, I think I can gamble pretty well, you know, and like, give me a business. Let me try that. So it was, it was a neat transition. And that's where I spent the last 10 years. And then Stephen and I got introduced through mutual friends. Um, probably in like 2012. As a consultant, mm -hmm. you were talking to CEO, mm -hmm. C-level people about what exactly? What was it that you would focus on with them? Well, I mean, it was uh, it was a combination. It was it was interior and exteriors of uh, individuals, teams, and organizations. So, how do you do an integrated approach to long-term conscious capitalism, and how do you actually help? leaders as well as their teams as well as their organization and strategy get shit done in a scalable interesting way so not that different than the kind of project tony shea has been trying to do with zappos or any you know anybody in this era now there's lots more of people saying let's use our businesses as platforms for social good and impact and let's use a comprehensive model of human leadership change and, and organizational effectiveness that addresses interior subjective shit as well as exterior strategy execution that kind of stuff. Got it. But that was, so that was certainly a mission-driven mm -hmm. project for you, mm -hmm. um, yeah. in alignment with where you were in, yeah. the, in terms of the, the kind of vision that you were working with. Yes. Um, and, and I felt I was at danger. I was like, oh, okay, I have to go back and renew my, the, own, the well of my own learning and experience. Otherwise, I'm prostituting a story for a bunch of office stiffs of like my former life of adventure and mystery, right? To come in and I was just like, I can't get too upside down on that equation. Otherwise I'm gonna be out of integrity. So felt like I was like, okay, um, if it, and, and then the, the inflection point was being offered a partner role in the, in the firm and then just fast forwarding 10 years and be like, oh Jesus, am I gonna be sitting at a swank country club selling an organ, you know, like a you know, 100K a month engagement to a client? Like, is that what I'm here to do? Is that what I can turn around and look my kids in the eye on my bed, deathbed and be like, I fucking nailed it, kids. It was like, hell no. And so that's when, and it was literally like uh, not long after the 08 crash. So like everybody in my family was like, what are you doing? I like walked away from that. And I was like, I have to go do the thing I have to go do. And what was that? Oh, it was build the Flow Genome Project and, and write these books and communicate, you know, this, this expression unfiltered. So flow, mm -hmm. you were already interested in flow. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? How did you get tuned on to that? Well, I mean, it just became a, a street legal descriptor that you could talk about these non-ordinary states without freaking people out. That was it. I mean, honestly, I never use the term flow in my own life. I never think, ooh, I'm in flow. I mean, if you, either, if you are, there's no point talking about it. And if you're not talking about it, it doesn't help get you there. So that's the grand irony of, of branding our organization in that way. But you also can train people and help people understand mm -hmm. how to identify flow For in sure. their own life and give them a way yes. to work towards it, receive it better, yeah. and then have that experience more often. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's completely demystified and, and, and very accessible. But, you know, I always joke the sort of first rule of flow club is you don't talk about flow. <laughs> you know, it's the gateless gate of Zen. It's, it's any of those things. It's just like, look, yes when you're in that general neck of the woods and afterwards, more importantly, you can be like, yeah, that was probably something in that zip code. However, um, obsessing, most people come into our work and they're in a waking state consciousness going, that sounds awesome. And I've glimpsed it. I want more of it. 
It's so, like, okay, awesome. We say waking state of consciousness. Yeah, like, like just me normal, like the knob on monophasic. Like, uh, like I know, and, and quite often, I mean, the profile of the folks that are often drawn to our work are, J A, really interesting, cool people, um, but they've generally had some experience of mastery in their life. They grew up playing sports, a musical instrument, academics, whatever it would be, they know what it's like to persist at something to a level of excellence through hell and high water. Then life happened, jobs happened, promotions happened, family happens, whatever it would be, and they still, they still, that's what made them come alive. They've had to, they get less and less of it as their responsibilities and the complexity of their lives increase, but they fucking know it, it's essential and they don't necessarily, and they're like, okay, now in the two weeks off I have or the one month, I have to be able to get there and I have to get there fast help me right you know actually steer back into that zone versus a life like when i played lacrosse in college and our entire existence was around getting together on that field and getting into that spot now i have to recreate it myself efficiently and scalably in my life so that's generally the folks we work with so for the listeners who don't know how would you describe flow well i mean the, the standard well i mean I'll, I'll describe it as a a a state of heightened situational awareness, meaning you are paying more attention and noticing more of what's going on around you in real time, and sort of extreme ergonomics, meaning you are, there is a highly efficient connection between thinking something and doing something. Said another way, it's where you feel your best and perform your best. It's where you lose sense of yourself, time slows down, um, and everything becomes sort of, you know, again, effortless or, or, or easy. Um, but in, in some respects, it's just you up on a plane. If you think about a boat tug, tug, tugging through the water and just displacing the water, that's how most of us are most of the time. But if you give it enough speed, the boat then pops up on top of the water and is skimming along the surface. And that's kind of the difference. It is, it is, a, it is our boat of ourselves up on a plane. Highly creative state mm -hmm. where you're making something producing something in the process of some kind of creation, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And feeling in tune and in touch mm -hmm. with something beyond the self, potentially. Yeah. The Flow Genome Project, you established it with Stephen Kotler mm -hmm. as, a, as a training center. Yeah. All right. People come, can you describe a little bit of what, what their experience is when they, when they come to that? Sure. I mean, it's basically, we're an organization dedicated to the research and training of peak performance in individuals and teams. And so, and in fact, we're, we're just, we're coordinating some research projects with Deloitte uh, and Flow and basically high-performing teamwork. And we're just launching one with Imperial College in London and Robin Carhart-Harris around comparing Flow and psychedelics. So we're super excited about that project as well. Um, and what we try to do is we try and advance, coordinate, and, you know, aggregate the leading research so people just have access to it and they apply there are people in public school systems that are now applying flow stuff to their kids development programs there are people in senior living centers that are using flow-based curriculums now for alzheimer's patients and other folks er docs and trauma sufferers so we try and get it out in the world um, and then also is you know people who would obviously like that for themselves and we do digital online trainings for you know people around the world and we also do in-person events uh, where we get to and again you know one of them will be going uh, climbing Mount Whitney in the Sierras uh, with one of the Navy SEAL commanders uh, and a bunch of leaders in October and so we'll be doing exactly the stuff we've just described which is like let's use big nature um, high consequence and deep embodiment as as you know big flow triggers get people into an immersive collective experience and so that that's the kind of stuff we do is saying here's the cheat codes make it experimental and experiential we won't tell you what it all means like we are avowedly agnostic 
So we'll say, here's the instructions to create these states. However, we stop at the doorstep of your own experience because we're not going to screw up your experimental data. Go conduct your experiment. Now, come back, what'd you find? And is it similar to ours or is it totally different, right? Either way, you go do it. N equals one. You're your own experiment. And so that's one that we take, a, I think, a pretty firm stand on. We're not going to try and presume to, to describe or define the misto. So what do you find people coming back to you or saying about the experiences they're having? Is there a commonality? Well, I mean, in sort of the yes and no, right? I mean, and, and I came across this in my own research. I was like, okay, who are the most woke folks in the last 50 years? And what did they say? And if you take Philip K. Dick, for instance, you know, the science fiction writer, and you take John Lilly, you know, the, the neuroscientist, and you take, you know, any Ken Kesey, you know, Tim Leary, whatever. You just take the guys who went big back in the day. And you really go back and read through their accounts and also their sort of phenomenology. Like, what sense did they make of it all? And how do they kind of organize reality based on their experiences of it? And you're like, oh, they're all totally different. There's some overlaps, for sure. But they are, I mean, uh, PKD and Lily have some eerie overlaps. Like, that one's super interesting. You're like, they both kind of went into, like, matrixy like other realms they kind of ended up in this manichaean sort of you know there's battles of light and dark there's like they went deep into the pudding and to me like that's fascinating when you see an overlap like that you're like oh maybe there's a bit of a there there like that's one we should put a pin in and see what else gathers around it um but in general we would say i mean yeah people people get insights into what's possible they often get clear on work or vocation and they get clear on some form of insight into healing and trauma uh, and, and the other thing, the unexpected, well, I mean, hoped for, but nice to know and have it affirmed is also really powerful connections to the people around them sharing these experiences. And so the feedback we get is like, hey, what feels fresh or different about the way you guys are doing this and laying this down is A, it's interdisciplinary, so it's not overly weighting a specific field. It's not just science. It's not definitely not just religion. It's not just cultural analysis. It's not just personal growth or psychological development. It's all of it. So people find that, which is weird, because that you'd think that's just beige. That's just average, of course. But like, I suppose it's relatively novel to do a multidimensional approach. Stephen Johnson uh, talks about the notion of the golden shadow and the idea that quite often we give to um, you know, pe leaders, charismatic folks, gurus, whatever, we give to them all the positive qualities and attributes we can't own for ourselves. Right, so Tony Robbins is the man. He's so awesome. Well, are you? Are you? Do you have that power? Or are you giving that away? Right? Does he reflect it to you? And you're like, oh no, not me, man. I got to sign up for the next workshop. Right? So, the notion of n equals one. You're your own experiment. We're not going to tell you what it means. And we constantly, very deliberately, be like, now take back your gold. Don't leave it here. Don't leave it hanging around the notion of a flow state. Don't don't like own your own power, and take responsibility for becoming a self-authoring individual. Like that the goal is to move from socially defined, like I'm just living out my script, the scripts that were handed to me, and become self-authoring. How do we actually learn to write the next chapters of our life? And so that, that tends to be the feedback is that people, A, are hungry for it, B, step right into it, and C, love to connect with the other folks that are doing that in a no-nonsense way. And that's really encouraging. An increased number of people who are coming around to this interest in peak experiences, altered states, higher levels of, of connection that mm -hmm. can be reflected in their performance. Their experiences lead them to, go, to want to go further, to connect with community, and to see what might be a little bit 
you know, say shimmering behind the veil. A key aspect of that for some people is this death of ego experience, which can be a game changer, opening you up to all kinds of other possibilities about what to be doing with your life, with your connections to others, sort of challenging your sense of self and the role that you've been playing in the world. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if in the process of working with people around flow, that you find that kind of thing surfacing, that there's a, that, that people are starting to have these kinds of experiences, the way you were describing a bit around your psychedelic experience when you were younger, that kind of altered state, that once the door starts to open a bit in that direction, a lot more starts coming through. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's so interesting and it's also so problematic. Um, and I think, you know, I think it was Jung again, he said, beware of unearned wisdom. And the situation we find ourselves in now where you can pop the pill, take the hit and experience a state of awareness that used to take decades if ever and only be, even be disclosed to an elect handful is now open to any punter, you know, with a dark web account. So like my overwhelming emphasis is on the return. It's not on the ascent. Like the ascent is fucking table stakes. Like that actually, while that's the blinky shiny and that's the pied pipery stuff, the idea of like, I would, I would always tell people like, don't die wondering, for sure. Don't die wondering. Don't burn another calorie on your cynical skeptical. Uh, yeah, is there really anything more? No, there's fucking lots more. Go see it as fast as you need to. Go scratch that itch. Go hunt your white whale. Get it over with quickly, safely, with a minimum of disruption. Come the fuck back right after you scratch that itch because what we need is we need like in uh zen in japanese zen there's the ox herding parables right and it's like these 12 panels symbolizing enlightenment the dude is chasing the ox the ox is enlightenment and then you know he doesn't find it and then he finally gets on the ox in like the middle of the like the sixth panel and you're like oh shit that dude's woke like that's the whole point no there's six more panels and then at some point right he it's like ox forgotten self alone so there's like like i've even i'm no longer enlightened and the final panel is really the point which he says it says even he says his, his doors and windows are locked even the wisest scholars cannot find him. He is down in the marketplace among the people with helping hands. And so that piece, the return to utter ordinariness, right? And the, the return to our humanity and our service and our engagement in the simplest shit. Like it does not matter. Like at some point, waking up is no longer sufficient to fucking write a book and hit the workshop circuit. You know, like we're moving, I would hope, if from the era of second comings, presumed get gurus and saviors to the umpteenth coming. Like this shit's accessible now. Let's all wake up. And now that it is utterly ordinary and is a natural progression of human development and expansion of consciousness. And the same way, you know, IQs have been rising over the decades, right? Levels of development are rising as well. You know, 30% of millennials are now at stages of development that their baby boomer parents didn't access until they were in their mid-30s. And these folks are now getting it by the age of, by college. So let's get over the exceptionalism and let's get over the blinky lights. And by all means, yeah, if you have an experience of selflessness, aka ego death, fucking A, right on, right on. Then what? You still have to come back and integrate and tune and calibrate that ego of yours. So let's let's focus on like yeah my sense would be transcendence is actually a commodity at this point 
It's table stakes. It's necessary but not sufficient. And it's the imminence. It's the hard ditch digging. You know, Teddy Roosevelt, I think, famously said, you know, when he was talking about the Panama Canal, he's like, he's like you know, we are going to unite the seas, the oceans of the world, and trade and democracy and freedom and markets and all this kind of stuff. And he's like, yeah, it was, it was 1% inspiration, that kind of talk, and 99% digging a big-ass ditch through a malaria-infested swamp. And we have some ditch digging to do. And so that's my sense is, is that by calibrating regular check-ins in those non-ordinary states, and we use, we use an idea called the hedonic calendar, like what is your daily practices, which are foundational and healthy, meditation, yoga, flossing your teeth, right? Doing the shit you need to do. Once a week, Sabbaths, where you just blip into that space and it doesn't, doesn't disrupt your world much, but you do get that nervous system reset and potentially a quick reminder of what you forgot. Once a month, maybe a half day. Right, quarterly, maybe a full day or even a weekend where you specifically dedicate it to shooting the moon. And then once a year, you're kind of, you know, quote unquote bucket list, your one week at Burning Man or your, your 10 days in a Vipassana retreat or your ultra marathon or whatever it would be for you and periodize them and then have a period of abstinence. Have one month, because if you start hacking all this stuff, it works. It works better than you can imagine. And when you combine them, it works even more than that. There's a sort of synthetic, syncretic bump to it all. So you won't know whether you're overclocked. You won't know whether you're like, oh, sacred tobacco, I'm hand-rolling my American spirits and I'm not, really, I'm not addicted to this at all because Native Americans, right? You're like, no, no, gut check. And once a year, do the Lenten thing, do the Ramadan, do the Yom Kippur, do, you know, or do New Year's, whatever it is, like use secular or traditional rhythms and go cold turkey and look at every single itch you got to scratch. Do I really need those two squares of dark chocolate after every dinner? Yeah, I kind of do. Mm, okay, what about my coffee? What about my tobacco? What about my cannabis? What about my sex? What about my entheogens? Whatever it would be. And, and, and then we get a chance to be like, oh, now, rather than engaged in this crypto Puritan battle with ourselves of indulgence, abstinence, indulgence, abstinence, I smoke too much weed, then, oh, no, I don't do it in a cold turkey. And then something's missing out of my system, so I go back to it. And this really useful again, because I've been abstinent for a while, but then right over there, I go back into the slippery slope of being a couch lock stoner. Fuck, how did that happen again, right? So you say, instead of engaging in a moral should I or shouldn't I with these left-hand, basically tantric techniques, you engage in just more often or less often. You just conducted an experiment. Do I have enough integration of the information? And then you're playing a very different game because what happens is when people indulge these things, they're doing it underconsciously without structure. And then they get right to the point where they're heating up the crucible. They are actually going to be burning through some egoic tendencies, some habits, something I mean, in the old kind of alchemical traditions. They're right there. And then usually they shit the bed. They get in trouble at work where they have a blow up in their relationship or they're, they're dropping a stitch somewhere. Then the moralistic judgment, the crypto puritanism kicks in. Then they go for abstinence and then they let the crucible cool down again. Right? So we're sort of dabbling in these stutter step experiences where what was the alchemical path of radical accelerated transformation, but we don't know what we're doing. And so a hedonic calendar is arguably a way to integrate right-hand and left-hand paths, the kind of orthodox and the guerrilla tantra, and steer it dynamically without a moralistic judgment and be able to use it as an experimental form. So that would be my hope, is that as long as it's like a potter kicking a, a potter's wheel, it takes a lot of energy to get it started. So let's, let's say you go down to the Amazon, you have a Peruvian blowout experience with your, with your shaman. You're like, holy fuck, I've just rewritten myself and my view of the world. Okay, cool, maybe. You come back and a lot of people will just let that inspiration dwindle, 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 all the way down to nothing. And then meditation is not enough to get it jump started again. Right, well, it's right. really hard for most people yeah. to find a way to integrate that into their life yes, yes. to find a way to to 
they had the vast opening, and then what? Because they're not changing anything else. They don't know how. And frankly, mm-hmm. the, there's very little discussion in the broader culture about what you can do, what mm-hmm. you should do in order to make sense of that, right? Yes. So there's a new book by Michael Pollan, How to Change Your Mind, about the medical research into using psychedelics to treat depression, you know, PTSD, and other psychological conditions. Mm-hmm. It's a bestseller. And for many people, it marks a sea change in mainstream public engagement with psychedelics. Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts about this new turn where we're seeing psychedelics entering the mainstream? Beyond Pollan's, you know, fairly straight ahead thesis, psychedelics can help you gain insights to yourself and grow. Yay. Amen. Base hit. Right. But the real thing is like, as we understand cognitive literacy, how does intersecting with our bodies and brains affect, shape, and inform our hearts and minds. We can then move into the real conversation I think that we need to have, which is cognitive liberty, which is that nobody has a right to hijack my consent, right? Specifically social media, dopamine loops, all these kinds of things. And no organization or government or power structure should have the right to legislate what happens between my ears. And so to me, that's like, if if any of this is going to actually persist, and actually has a shot at doing something other than flash in the pan novelty and kind of, you know, come and go. It's that, it's, it's cognitive literacy. Let us understand the mechanisms of our own consciousness and being clearly rationally without ex- excessive mystification and then cognitive liberty. How do we, how do we defend those, domain, those domains and our access to them um, from folks, yeah, I would say um, looking, presuming to hijack them without our consent. Yeah, it's such an important thing now to defend our rights to do what we want with our own bodies and brains. Yeah. As we're in this moment of discovering a whole panoply of opportunities that are there in order to bring ourselves into higher states. Mm -hmm. We are just experimenting now really with a whole new kit in many ways. We had inklings about before that had been developed by all of these different global lineages that had not intersected until really in the last generation or two. So we can compare notes effectively between Mm -hmm. those different lineages. And at the same time, the science is getting so much more sophisticated. We're learning so much more about Mm -hmm. how we're responding to certain kinds of experiences that really do alter brain function, brain chemistry. Mm -hmm. To lock things down now Mm -hmm. would be tragic. So this this is the moment. This is the time. Thank you so much, Jamie, for joining us and being part of the program. It's great to have you here. Where can people find you? Sure, we're on Facebook at uh, Facebook Flow Genome is the main page and you can jump into groups to play and train and and get more videos and content. And then flowgenomeproject.com is our home base on the web. Thank you very much. For sure, man. Great to connect. I want to thank Jamie Wheel again for joining us on the podcast. And I want to thank you all for being part of this as well. You know, it's such a pleasure to be doing this and to get the response that we're getting from so many of you uh, through email and through text messages I'm getting in the middle of the night for people all around the world. It's really a beautiful thing. Thank you so much. Please, if you can, go to iTunes and leave a review there because frankly, that could be helpful for us. We can reach more people that way. Uh, it helps to, to get it out into the world. So you can follow us on Instagram at The Evolver Podcast and on Facebook at Evolver Social Movement. Remember to subscribe to The Evolver on iTunes if you haven't already or on the podcatcher of your choice on Acast 
And our email address, if you want to reach out, is theevolver at evolver.net. Thanks to our producer, Jose Alfaro, and the entire ACAST team. Our theme music is Measure by Measure by Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, from his album, The Secret Song. And our interstitial music is Sunu by The Human Experience in Rising Appalachia from their album, Soul Visions. Please check them out. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.